the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. And welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to be back live in studio. Thank you, James. <laughs> Thank you, James. Um, anyway, it is good to be back. As you may know, I've spent the last couple of weeks in India. I had the opportunity to travel with India Partners, and it was an extraordinary trip. Now, one might imagine, well, the fact that you were in India, that alone would make it extraordinary. But the truth is, it was extraordinary because I had an opportunity to meet with the folks with whom India Partners partners with. And while we've talked about them here on the program, we've raised funds for many of their projects, uh, having the opportunity to meet the individuals who oversee these projects there, the people who benefit from uh, these uh, these services was really, um, it exceeded my expectations. First of all, when it was made known to them that I represented the radio station, and uh, they were reminded that uh, you, the listeners here at KPDQ, had helped to underwrite a number of the projects that they were involved in. The level of gratitude, it, it was a little bit embarrassing because I, I represented you. I stood in your place, and they expressed to me their gratitude for uh, the support that you have given them. And then I had the opportunity to learn something of the people who are in charge, uh, the leaders of the ministries, Living Sacrifice Ministry, as well as Sahara. And you've heard uh, a bit about uh, these two organizations and some of the water projects, for example, that uh, this radio station has helped to uh, to place in areas that desperately needed it. To have the opportunity to meet them, to witness their level of commitment and proficiency and their uh, their utter dependence upon God was such a thrill Uh, As I mentioned, it exceeded my expectations. Um, And so I told them that I would relay to you what they said to me. And by the way, I'm going to spend some time next week focusing uh, on that trip and giving you some of the detail. And I'm uh, trying to arrange for one of my fellow travelers uh, to also join me uh, in um, recalling those events. But I I want you to know how grateful uh, these men and women in ministry are for your uh, your help. They are doing amazing work under very difficult circumstances, and in some cases, with the pressure of a government that's less and less tolerant of, uh, of Christianity pressing in on them. So their circumstances have changed. It's required them to make some adjustments to their approach, but their commitment to uh, extending the love of Christ and serving people in their communities under some of the most difficult circumstances you could imagine. And then you times that by two or three and that then you might have a, a, a view of, of the challenges they face. Uh, but these are people of great joy, uh, great um, commitment, and they've made major sacrifices 
to minister effectively in their respective communities. And I'll talk in greater detail at some point in the future about some of the specific areas of, uh, of ministry that they're involved in. Um, but I uh, wanted to at least uh, let you know that it was an extraordinary trip. I met some amazing people that challenged me in my faith, that inspired me, that encouraged me, and I uh, hope to encourage you as well. Uh, and I'm looking forward to our next India Partners Radiothon because, once again, we'll have an opportunity to um, put feet to our uh, to our support of uh, this organization and the ministries that they support there as well. So spent two weeks there, um, spent time in New Delhi, in Rajamundri, and in, um, in Mumbai, and we'll uh, hopefully have some time to talk about some of those details uh, when we set some time apart next week. But it is good to be back, and uh, it's been a bit of an adjustment. Of, of course, I, I think I calculated that I spent somewhere between 45 and 50 hours flying either from here to there, uh, and then in country, so it it uh, it can be rather strenuous to spend that much time uh, in the air, uh, but also the time change. I noticed this morning uh, when the alarm went off, uh, I hadn't made the adjustment for daylight saving time. I looked at my watch this afternoon, and I was still on Mumbai time. So uh, it's been a bit of a confusing thing, and then of course trying to regulate uh, your sleep patterns. But it was worth every bit of that uh, adjustment and discomfort. Uh, for the opportunity to have uh, met with these ministry partners. So I look forward to explaining more fully, if you will, um, that experience sometime next week. And I'll let you know ahead of time. Well, today on the program, we're going to talk with Jason Sneed. He's a policy analyst at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Institute for Constitutional Government. We're going to talk about the president's calling out the embattled county election official in Florida in the vote count mess It's not the first time there's been a mess in Florida. This is just the latest example. And one official in particular causes most observers who have some um, view of the history of that area to scratch their head. Why is she still there doing what she does? But anyway, we'll talk with Jason Sneed about that. Also, I'm going to talk with Wes Walterman. He's the director and CEO of The Singing Christmas Tree. I consider him something of a renaissance man. He Uh, does it all. And Jamie, who is a choir member for the Singing Christmas Tree, this will be her second year performing. We're going to tell you what to expect when the Singing Christmas Tree opens its curtain for the first time the day after Thanksgiving. We'll run through that weekend. That's Friday through Sunday. And then the following weekend, beginning on Thursday, there'll be performances through the following Sunday. So uh, we'll give you all the details, the phone number, the uh, website. And by the way, if you can't wait, I would encourage you to go to singingchristmastree.org and you can get all the uh, details there as well. And I should mention that Katie Harmon, 2002 Miss America, will be performing this year. It's going to be amazing. And um, we'll talk more about that. Well, taking a look at some of the uh, developing stories over the last day and a half and a new op-ed, a former advisor to Hillary Clinton explains why he believes that she will run for president again and easily win the Democratic nomination for 2020. Now, I don't doubt that she is considering running again, but whether or not she can easily uh, win the um, the nomination, I have to say, I'm not so sure. Well, Hillary 4.0, as some are referring to it, there's a buzz about her considering another bid to become president. It appears to be growing louder. Former advisor Mark Penn is making the latest noise in an op-ed that appeared in the Wall Street Journal on Monday. He wrote the following, get ready for Hillary Clinton 4.0. 
More than 30 years in the making, this new version of Mrs. Clinton, when she runs for president in 2020, will come full circle back to the universal health care promoting progressive firebrand of 1994. True to her name, Mrs. Clinton will fight this out until the last dog dies. Uh, she won't let a little thing like two stunning defeats stand in the way of her claim to the White House. End quote. So you can make of it what you will, but we're being uh, told that that's what she intends to do. Now, this may be one of those tests to see how people respond to determine whether or not she actually decides to uh, make the effort again in 2020. But there you have it. Also yesterday, I wasn't live on the air, but on that day, Veterans Day, 1927, Joseph Stalin became the undisputed ruler of the Soviet Union as Leon Trotsky was expelled from the Communist Party a day in history worth remembering. And other developing news today, a judge has ordered both sides in the Florida recount battle to ramp down the rhetoric amid allegations echoed by the president of fraud and corruption. A federal judge has ruled the state must review the provisional ballots in the tight Georgia gubernatorial race. And Republican Martha McSally has conceded the U.S. Senate race in Arizona to Democrat Kirsten Sinema. That was last night, making Sinema the state's first elected Democratic U.S. senator since 1976. I remember the year well. The death toll in Northern California's wildfires has risen to 42, making it the state's deadliest so far. President Trump is considering removing Kirsten Nielsen as Homeland Security Secretary, according to one report. And Amazon announced um, that the New York City and Northern Virginia sites will be the home for their new additional headquarters. And fans and luminaries worldwide remembered Stan Lee as a pop culture icon. The legendary creator of many of Marvel's favorite superheroes died on Monday at the age of 95. Well, a judge on Monday urged opposing sides in the Florida recount struggle to ease their rhetoric, saying it is eroding the public's confidence in the state's election for the U.S. Senate and governor. Of course, many politicians don't really mind if it ends up giving them what they ultimately want, and that's power. Arguably, arguably rather, both sides may agree the public's confidence in Florida's election system was shaken long before the current recount controversy. An honest vote count is no longer possible. President Trump said on Monday, as he and other Republicans alleged the fraud and illegal activity have taken place in Florida since the polls in the midterms closed last week. Law enforcement officials said state monitors have found no evidence of wrongdoing, but anger is festering in Florida nonetheless. And later this hour, we'll talk with Jason Sneed about the latest. And the uh, federal judge ruled that Georgia has to count provisional ballots and delay the state's certification until the votes are tallied. Um, uh, according to the races in uh, Georgia, Lauren Wargo, Abrams' campaign manager, announced that Judge Amy Totenberg's decision late Monday, uh, according to local media, they reported that the judge's 56-page ruling could affect thousands of provisional ballots. Brian Kemp, her Republican challenger, issued a statement a day earlier calling for Abrams to concede. Kemp has declared victory and said it is mathematically impossible for her campaign to force a runoff. Abrams, 44, a Democrat, maintain that she will not concede until every vote has been counted and pointed to the 5,000 votes tallied over the weekend that favored her. While Republican U.S. Representative uh, Martha McSally conceded Arizona's U.S. Senate race to Democratic Congresswoman Kirsten Sinema on Monday after the latest vote count showed McSally trailing by more than 38,000 votes out of more than 2.2 million ballots cast. Congratulations to 
Kirsten Sinema, I wish her success. McSally tweeted from her official campaign account. I'm grateful to all those who who supported me in this journey. I'm inspired by Arizonans' spirit and our state's best days are ahead of us. Sanima's victory means that Democrats have flipped the seat previously held by retiring Republican Senator Jeff Flake. Democrats now have 47 Senate seats, rather, while Republicans have 51. The final makeup of the Senate will be determined following a recount in Florida and a November 27th runoff election in Mississippi. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 24 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the death toll for the wildfire burning in Northern California campfire rose to 42 people last night, making it the deadliest wildfire ever in the state of California, according to officials. Authorities announced that 13 more bodies were found during searches on Monday. The death toll is expected to continue to rise. Uh, The deaths were found in... uh, burned out cars in the smoldering ruins of their homes or next to their vehicles, apparently overcome by smoke and flames before they could jump in the uh, behind the wheel and escape. In some cases, there were only charred fragments of um, those who had lost their lives so small that coroners investigators used a wire basket to sift and sort through them. The news comes after the president approved a major disaster declaration in the Golden State uh, early Monday evening. California Governor Jerry Brown has requested the declaration on sat on Sunday, rather, which will bolster ongoing emergency assistance and help residents recover from fires burning in Butte, Los Angeles and Ventura counties. The governor's declaration asks to make individuals eligible for crisis counseling, housing and unemployment help and legal aid. The fires have caused major havoc throughout the western state, and it uh, it continues. Well, the president may be looking for a new Homeland Security Secretary. The president's making preparations to remove Kirsten Nielsen as Homeland Security Secretary. The Washington Post is reporting. According to the Post, current and former White House officials say the president has been unhappy with her enforcement of immigration policies and that her departure from the administration could come in the coming weeks. However, John Roberts uh, reported on Fox News at night on Monday that there have been conflicting reports about the president's level of happiness with her and that a source says her departure is not likely imminent. However, she could make a move by the end of the year. And the drum roll has ended and Amazon has made its choices. New York City and Northern Virginia will be the homes for the e-commerce giants second and third headquarters, according to uh, Uh, The announcement made earlier today, the announcement ended a year long contest that started with 238 candidates, ended with a surprise split of what is referred to as HQ2. The second headquarters is expected to be split evenly between Long Island City, which is in the New York City borough of Queens and Arlington County's Crystal City neighborhoods. And dubbed a great storyteller, Stan Lee is credited with the creation of many beloved Marvel superheroes. His death at 95 years old stunned the world on Monday, although I suppose it stunned might be an overstatement. He was 95. As the top writer in Marvel Comics and later as its publisher, he reviewed or rather revived the energy uh, industry in the 1960s by offering the costumes and action Um, uh, craved by younger readers while insisting on sophisticated plots, college-level dialogue, satire, science fiction, even philosophy. He brought to life many characters, including Spider-Man, Black Panther, The Avengers, and X-Men. Comics writer Jerry Duggan, 
He said he was thankful for Lee's many collaborations and his immeasurable kindness. We have lost Stan Lee, one of our great storytellers, a writer and imaginer who created whole universes. Author R.L. Stein uh, says of him as well. And on this day in 2000, lawyers for George W. Bush failed to win a court order barring manual recounts of ballots in Florida. Florida Secretary of State Catherine Harris announces she would end the recounting at 5 p.m. Eastern time the next day, prompting an immediate appeal by lawyers for Al Gore. Lord, the spotlight is back on Florida today as well. And on this day in 1982, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial is dedicated on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. If you haven't had the opportunity to see it and you're in D.C., I would highly recommend it. Very moving. And on this day in 1789, Benjamin Franklin writes in a letter to a friend, Jean-Baptiste Leroy, In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Well, there are a couple of other things, but it was a rather clever saying at the time. Let's see, what time is it? We have a conversation coming up with Jason Sneed. He's a policy analyst at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We're going to talk about what's going on in uh, in Florida. Uh, Florida Governor uh, Rick Scott and Democrat, um, he's looking to unseat Bill Nelson, may both make an appearance in Washington this week to lay claim to the same Senate seat. If Palm Beach can't get their recount done by the deadline, Palm Beach County will have to use the vote count submitted to the Florida Secretary of State on Saturday, according to Florida law. We're going to talk about what's going on there and whether or not it's similar to what happened back in 2000. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 33 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump is scrutinizing the Florida election recount process, and he isn't the only one. On election night, it appeared likely that Rick Scott, the outgoing Florida Republican governor, had defeated Democratic Senator Bill Nelson for his seat. It appeared even more likely that the Republican ex-representative Ron DeSantis defeated Democrat Andrew Gillum, the mayor of Tallahassee, to be Florida's next governor. By Friday morning, both Nelson and Gillum were challenging the outcome. Also still in question is the outcome of the race for the state agriculture commissioner with a candidate separated by fewer than 500 votes. Automatic recounts are triggered under Florida law when the uh, candidates are separated by less than 0.5 percent of the vote. Well, Scott's Senate campaign and the Republican senatorial campaign committee sued both Broward and Palm Beach counties, seeking to make the county's vote uh, counting more transparent and ensure that each is following state election laws. By late Friday, a Florida a court ruled in Scott's favor in the Broward County case. But the drama continues. Nelson's campaign sued the state Thursday to force a recount. Nelson's lawyer, Mark Elias, a former attorney for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign, called the Senate race a jump ball. Friday morning, en route to Paris, the president said there could be a federal role in sorting out the electoral mess in Florida when asked about it by a reporter. He also referenced Brenda Snipes, the supervisor of elections for Broward County. Well, that's at least some of the details of the mess in Florida. Here to talk to us about what's happened and what's happened next is Jason Sneed, policy analyst with the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Institute for Constitutional Government. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I suppose we shouldn't be altogether surprised that there's a bit of a mess in Florida. We've seen this before. This isn't really... Uh, the same uh, repeat of 2000, but how serious is the mess there, and does it just come down to two uh, two counties? 
Well, it certainly seems like it always does. And uh, I guess as the old saying goes, uh, fool me once, right? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, once again, the, uh, the country is holding its breath and watching an election which has national implications and could well decide the direction of politics for the nation uh, into the next decade. Uh, and they're all looking at Florida and uh, wondering exactly what is going on. Once again, we have uh, Broward County in particular, uh, which is really proving itself to be an exemplar when it comes to uh, misconduct and mismanagement in the administration of U.S. elections. And I really do uh, think that everybody here, regardless of what their political affiliation is, Republican or Democrat, should be extremely concerned about uh, how this process is unfolding. Mm. Well, the name Brenda Snipes has come up. She's the supervisor of elections in Broward County. Um, she's a Democrat, most recently reelected in 2016. Uh, what role does she play in all of this? Is she a scapegoat or does she really bear some responsibility for the current confusion? I think that she bears a, a good bit of responsibility. She's been uh, called alternately the most controversial or the most incompetent election supervisor in the state of Florida. And I think that the, the track record for Broward County under her leadership speaks for itself. Uh, it was not that long ago. It was actually during a lawsuit in 2016 that her office illegally destroyed ballots that were actually the subject of a lawsuit between uh, the Democratic challenger to Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who alleged that uh, there was uh, there were sufficient grounds that, uh, that uh, the election may well have been wrongly decided and needed those ballots for review. Uh, and just in the course of the past week, Americans have witnessed what I think is an, an absolutely astounding series of events where the Broward County uh, elections officials have uh, been unable or unwilling to produce voter information for the public to view for the campaigns in, in compliance with state law, where the number of ballots that remains to be recounted uh, is unable to be determined, and where ballots are surfacing, which the Broward County elections officials in charge of the recount cannot uh, determine where they originated from and cannot account for their whereabouts since Election Day. So this is a truly astounding set of circumstances. And again, I think that it bears close uh, scrutiny and close watching by everyone uh, in the United States. Well, here we are days after Election Day, and we're still trying to sort through the outcome in uh, in Florida. What should we look for as these issues presumably will ultimately be resolved? Will it uh, be simply by counting the ballots that they already have? Is the court likely to step in and ultimately make the determination? What do you anticipate and what should we look for? Uh, well, there's going to be a, a couple of things that are going to be happening in relatively rapid succession. Under uh, Florida state law, there's only a couple of more days left before the, the tallies have to be counted in the uh, machine ballot recount, which is taking place right now. At that point, if uh, either the governor or the Senate races remain within a quarter of a percentage point of one another, that is uh, 0.25%, then the process moves to a manual recount where, uh, once again, we'll be, I'm sure, seeing a great many photographs of elections officials uh, peering intently at uh, millions of paper ballots to determine exactly what these paper ballots said. That process will, uh, under state law, supposedly wrap up by November the 18th, but I think it's inevitable that much like we saw in Bush v. Gore in 2000, we're going to see lawsuits emerge from this. In fact, we've already seen several, and it may, it may very well end up getting punted to a court to make the final determination about when exactly the cutoff is going to, uh, to be for this uh, manual recount. So the mess continues. The mess continues, unfortunately. And uh, there, I'd like to say that there's an end in sight, but unfortunately it seems that uh, particularly... Uh, those lawyers who are down there for the Gillum and the Nelson campaigns 
are pulling out all the stops to attempt to win an election that, uh, as of right now, seems to have been decided uh, by the, the Florida voters for the Republican candidate. As I mentioned, in route to Paris on Friday morning, the president said that there could be a federal role for sorting out the electoral mess in Florida. He was asked by a reporter about it. Is that likely to be an element in all of this and resolving ultimately who the next uh, governor and senator and so on are going to be? I'd say that's unlikely at this point, although it's, of course, possible. I think that the more likely uh, outcome is that we're going to see attorneys for uh, for all of the relevant campaigns in both of the political parties uh, descending uh, en masse, as they already have to a great degree, and they will be uh, handling the legal work, determining exactly what the standards for the recount are going to be and what kinds of, of ballots are going to be counted or invalidated. And, uh, in fact, we've seen some, I think, rather alarming uh, developments uh, particularly from the uh, lawyers who are down there for the Democratic candidates, arguing that ballots which were cast after the uh, cutoff for ballots to be submitted uh, by mail, they're ca- arguing for ballots that are otherwise invalidated to be counted as lawful ballots. And I think that's a concerning development in this race. So are we looking at weeks or months before this is likely to be resolved? Well, hopefully we're talking about uh, days or weeks, but of course, with uh, an election that is this consequential hanging in the balance, or in the balance, excuse me, it could well be months, and I would certainly hope that's not the case. Uh, it, it, you know, if we follow state law, then we're looking at uh, just a few more days before this process should be wrapped up. Now, as we mentioned earlier, this isn't the first time we've seen this kind of controversy in Florida over an election. Uh, some are suggesting there needs to be election reform. Is is that likely to be the result in Florida? Or are we going to continue to see um, the likes of Brenda Snipes and others who seem to demonstrate um, incompetence to continue to hold their positions and see this sort of thing play out again at some point in the future? Uh, well, the uh, the old saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same, seems to apply here. Uh, Brenda Snipes, who is the uh, uh, woman of the hour in this election, was actually appointed after her predecessor was removed for, misman- for mishandling yeah. the 2002 elections. And so I would certainly hope that uh, if the 2000 election was not enough of a wake-up call, that what's going on in 2018 will encourage Florida lawmakers to make some serious changes and actually hold elections officials accountable when they demonstrate incompetence and mismanagement. Because at the end of the day, voters have a right to expect that their elections are, are free of fraud, that they fairly and accurately reflect the will of voters. And if we have elections officials in positions of authority that are not doing their job and we wind up in predicaments like this, I think that the voters have a right to demand change. Well, let's see what uh, what voters in Florida ultimately say once and if this is uh, resolved. Thank you so much for talking with us today. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Again, Jason Sneed is policy analyst at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies Institute for Constitutional Government. What uh, what a mess. Uh, in fact, the uh, was it the Miami Herald predicted before the election that this is precisely what to expect. And in particular, in Broward County, under the leadership of uh, leadership of the election commissioner whose competence has been called into question on this and previous occasions uh, as well. Anyway, something to uh, to keep our uh, eyes open on. Now, I was gone during the election, and I um, just want to clarify that I made sure that my ballot was uh, completed and mailed early enough so that my um, votes would be counted for uh, this election. I proudly cast my vote in favor of Measure 106 to end state-funded abortion, was very discouraged uh, while in India to get some of the election results as they were uh, coming in on Indian 
uh, television and then to search more deeply to find that that measure did not pass. It certainly was not due to lack of effort, but they, uh, the opposition was uh, outfunded uh, this humble uh, campaign, which was uh, essentially fueled by passion uh, by a significant margin. And I was saddened to hear that. But I expected by the time I made it home from uh, from India and back to the studio that the election would be a, a story that had come and gone. It would have been covered by others and we could move on. But Florida, Georgia, other uh, things that have yet to be resolved, uh, of course, means that that has not been the case. I was looking forward to that 15 minutes following the midterm election between that and the announcement of the 2020 presidential uh, hopefuls uh, in that uh, presidential campaign beginning, but we don't have that luxury this time around, sadly. 44 minutes after uh, 4 o'clock is the time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A little later in the 5 o'clock hour, looking forward to a conversation with Wes Walterman, director and CEO of The Singing Christmas Tree, and Jamie. She's a choir member. This will be her second year performing uh, in the tree. You can look for her. She is in the actual tree. They're in tree choir and there's out of tree choir. You can look for Jamie uh, in tree. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. One of the things that's fascinating to me about being abroad is watching the media from countries other than my own and their interpretation of events as they unfold here in the United States. I didn't have a lot of time for watching media in India, but during um, meals, oftentimes there would be in the uh, in the lunchroom um, of at least one or two of the places we stayed, uh, television would be on and they'd be talking about the elections. One of the things I heard while there was that Attorney General, that Attorney General Jeff Sessions resigned and that his chief of staff, Matthew Whitaker, would act uh, in his stead until a permanent replacement is confirmed. The president made that announcement on Wednesday, and while it wasn't surprising, it did make me wonder what on earth happened. After all that has been said about Jeff Sessions and the president's disappointment regularly expressed in unflattering ways, I was surprised that it took this long. But following an election in which the uh, Republicans lost the House, I suppose it wasn't all that surprising. Well, Sessions tendered his resignation, which came at the president's request, we are told. Again, no surprise there. In a letter that was delivered to the president via the chief of staff, John Kelly. Dear Mr. President, at your request, I am submitting my resignation. Sessions wrote in that letter before recounting the accomplishments of his office in facilitating the president's law and order agenda. Well, the president had reportedly long planned to dismiss Jeff Sessions, but wanted to wait until after the midterm election so as not to disrupt Republicans' campaign messaging. Sessions became a regular target for the president's scorn, as you uh, well know, over the past year, as the president lashed out at him in multiple interviews and on Twitter over his decision to recuse himself uh, from what became special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation, his probe into Russian election meddling. That probe continues. Sessions' recusal came after the revelation that he misled the FBI about contacts he had with Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak during the 2016 campaign. He took the job, and then he said, I'm going to recuse myself, the president repeated over and over again, uh, following, or rather followed up with his criticism. Well, after keeping his... Um, uh, criticism of the attorney general largely private for the first year of his administration. He burst forth uh, following uh, that first year. The former Alabama lawmaker remained largely silent in the face of the president's criticism, but responded forcefully in February when the president once again attacked him for recusing himself 
from overseeing the Russia probe. As long as I am the attorney general, Sessions said in a statement, I will continue to discharge my duties with integrity and honor. Well, Whitaker, who now oversees the Mueller probe in his role as acting attorney general, wrote an op-ed in August in which he argued Mueller would be exceeding his mandate if he attempted to investigate Trump's personal finances. So we'll see where this all ends up uh, in the days ahead. But that was uh, somewhat surprising. And then, of course, as I mentioned, the um, measure to end state funding of abortion, Measure 106, um, uh, was outspent by abortion proponents and failed to uh, pass in the state of Oregon. The uh, the vote was 64 to 36 percent, respectively, uh, in in opposition to the measure. 106 revealed a large disparity, and I appreciate Jim Miller wrote on the subject in the funding of the campaigns. Supporters of 106, Oregon Life United PAC, raised $404,000 in donations. The opponents um, of Measure 106, No Cuts to Care PAC, were able to raise $3.7 million to defeat that measure. More than half of that $3.7 million raised by out-of-state organizations and donors. Uh, Oregon is considered something of a flagship, so that wasn't uh, altogether surprising. And I thought some of the ads were misleading in terms of what 106 uh, would do. Uh, the small fundraising effort by Oregon Life United represented the grassroots campaign nature of this measure. Um, and it uh, certainly reflected the passion of those uh, those of us who believe very strongly that while we do not have the power to end abortion in the state of Oregon, to end state funding of it by taxpayers who oppose the uh, uh, the practice seemed a reasonable uh, approach. Um, I do want to just say, and again, I'm, I wasn't here on Election Day. I didn't have an opportunity to speak to it at that time. But I wanted to compen- commend those uh, with Oregon Life United for um, persisting in, in pushing this to the ballot and uh, putting the question on the ballot. It took a tremendous amount of commitment and sacrifice in order for that to be the case. And while we don't always win the battle, we do have... It seems to me an obligation uh, to stand for truth and righteousness. And this measure seems to me to have done that, even if it fails. Um, I should mention that endorsers for Measure 106 came from Oregon Life uh, United, Oregon Right to Life, Randy Alcorn of Eternal Perspective Ministries, Portland Archdiocese, and a wide collection of individual women from various backgrounds. The opposition endorsers, uh, not surprisingly, came from groups like Planned Parenthood, Portland City Club, Oregon Medical Association, the American Civil Liberties Association, Oregon State Firefighters Council, Oregon AFL-CAO, the Oregon School of Employees Association. Again, a sad, uh, sad defeat. Uh, I appreciated that Lois Anderson, who's the executive director of Oregon Right to Life, in response to what happened, wrote this. Oregon is uniquely challenged because it is a stronghold for the abortion industry. With the Supreme Court of the United States potentially reversing Roe versus Wade in the future, states with few to no restrictions like Oregon are increasingly targeted. Millions of dollars poured into pro-abortion candidates' coffers to fund their campaigns. Against these odds, you and other pro-life voters still made a tremendous difference. We held most of the pro-life seat in the Oregon legislature, including in several races where the candidate ran for the first time. Other significant victories were had, including um, uh, Colm Willis in his race for Marion County Commissioner. Um, What to do now or what we do now, we continue in our advocacy. We keep educating our communities. We keep working to help Oregon foster care and adoption systems. We keep standing on sidewalks and peaceful protests. We keep marching in Portland. And there is an event uh, that's annual in uh, January marking the um, 
anniversary of the infamous Roe versus Wade, Doe versus Bolton uh, decisions. The pro-abortion majority in the Oregon legislature has increased to a supermajority in both houses. Measure 106 suffered a devastating loss after the no campaign outspent the yes campaign by an overwhelming ratio. Um, but the challenge continues and uh, vigilance is always uh, the right way to go. So, uh, I, again, I want to commend Oregon Life United for a valiant effort uh, to raise the question that should have been raised and doing a, a great job of uh, campaigning, putting this issue on the ballot. Well, are you ready for Hillary Clinton 4.0? More than 30 years in the making, this new version of uh, Mrs. Clinton, when she runs for president in 2020, will come full circle back to the universal health care promoting progressive firebrand of 1994. Many of the people to whom uh, Andrew Stein writes this article in the Wall Street Journal weren't around in 1994. True to her name, he goes on to say Mrs. Clinton will fight this out until the last dog dies. She won't let a little thing like two stunning defeats stand in the way of her claim to the White House. And it's an interesting way of putting it, her claim to the White House. He continues, it's been quite a journey. In July of 1999, Mrs. Clinton began her independent political career on retiring Uh, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan's farm in upstate New York. Her Senate platform included support for a balanced budget, the death penalty, and incremental health care reform. It was a decisive break from her early 1990s self. Hillary Clinton 2.0 was a moderate, building on the successes of her communitarian It Takes a Village appeals and pledging to bring home the bacon for New York. She emphasized her religious background, voiced strong support for Israel, voted for the Iraq War and took a hard line against Iran. This was arguably the most successful version of Hillary Clinton. She captured the hearts and minds of New York's voters and soared to an easy re-election in 2006, leaving Bill and all his controversies behind. Again, quoting Mark Penn and Andrew Stein. But Hillary 2.0 could not overcome Barack Obama. The instant press sensation... During the 2008 presidential campaign, Mrs. Clinton held fast to centrist positions that would have assured her victory in the general election, but progressive leaders and donors abandoned her for the anti-war Mr. Obama. Black voters who had been strong Clinton supporters in New York and Arkansas left her column to elect the first African-American president. History was made, but not by Mrs. Clinton. Though she won more delegates from Democratic primaries, activists and caucus states gave Mr. Obama, who had called her likable enough, the, bre- the heartbreaking win. Licking her wounds, Mrs. Clinton served as Secretary of State while she planned her comeback. It was during this time that the more liberal Hillary 3.0 emerged. She believed she could never win a primary as a moderate, so she entered the 2016 primary as a progressive like Mr. Obama. Then she moved further left as Senator Bernie Sanders came closer to derailing her nomination. This time she was able to contain her opponent's support, crucially by bringing African-American voters back into her camp. Mrs. Clinton's transformation during the primaries, especially on social and cultural issues, cost her an easy win against Donald Trump. As Hillary Clinton 3.0 catered to the coastal elites who had eluded her in 2008. Well, he goes on a bit later, or they go on, expect Hillary 4.0 to come out swinging. She has decisively to win those Iowa caucus goers who have never warmed up to her. They will see her now as strong, partisan, left-leaning, and all-Democrat, the one with the guts, experience, and steely-eyed determination to defeat Mr. Trump. She has had two years to go over what she did wrong and how to, uh, to take him on again. Now, interestingly, when asked about why she lost, she doesn't seem to explain very well. 
Uh, but he goes on to write, or they, Richard Nixon came back from his loss to John F. Kennedy in 1960 and won the presidency in 68. He will be the model for winning again. Mrs. Clinton won't travel the country with a van with um, Huma Abedin this time doing small events and retail politics. Instead, she will enter through the front door, mobilizing the army of professional women behind her, leveraging her social networks, raking in donations. She will hope to emerge as an unstoppable force to undo Mr. Trump running on the hashtag Me Too movement, universal health care and gun control. Proud and independent this time, she will sideline Bill and Mr. Obama limiting their role to fundraising. Well, Mr. Penn is a pollster, senior advisor to Bill and Hillary Clinton from 95 to 2008. He's a former Democratic Manhattan borough president and president of the New York City Council. And while this is supposed to be a flattering piece, it does raise some questions, it seems to me, about who Hillary Clinton is. and Does she have to morph into something else to even have the slightest possibility of impacting young people who seem to be willing to just move on? You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, two minutes after five o'clock. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Eight minutes after five o'clock is our time. Later this hour, in fact, in our next segment, we're going to talk with Wes Walterman, the director and CEO of The Singing Christmas Tree, and Jamie. She's been in the choir. This will be her second year. We're going to talk about this uh, 2018 season. It's going to be spectacular. I wish I could say it with more gusto so you could really appreciate how great it's going to be. But you can listen into our conversation. We'll give you a glimpse into what to anticipate for this 2018 season. And it's going to be great. Can I just give you a little secret? Katie Harmon, 2002 Miss America. She's going to be there. So just saying. That's coming up in our next segment. Well, when it comes to our nation's spending, most politicians are only interested in the time between now and the next election. It'll be future generations of politicians who will resolve some of the bigger issues, it would seem, they reason. Well, because of this, we can't rely on Congress to give us the full, honest truth about our fiscal trajectory and what exactly needs to change. We need independent voices. Well, one such voice came last week when the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget released a new report titled The 75-Year Budget Outlook. The report examines the impact of our nation's finances on future decades, and it offers insights into how we can start moving back in the direction of fiscal responsibility and solvency. They may need to look that up because the concept of physical response or rather fiscal responsibility and solvency has long been lost to history. Right now, things aren't looking so good. The Federal Reserve recently made the decision to raise its interest rate target from 1.9% to 2.2%, marking the third rate hike this year. And while the Fed cites the economy's uh, current strength to justify its decision, rising rates indicate that the federal government should tighten spending, not continue increasing it. Well, interest rates are expected to continue rising, which will only make our debt more expensive because when interest rates go up, so does the cost of interest payments that must be paid. If the federal government wants to avoid a fiscal disaster, it should listen to the Fed's signal and cut spending. Well, since about 2015, less than a decade after the financial crisis, interest rates have been climbing. All the while, the federal government has continued to spend like crazy. Much of the spending is debt-driven, and it seems that next year, trillion-dollar deficits will likely be back. All this under a unified Republican government that just a few years ago was flooded with Tea Party fiscal hogs banging on the Capitol's door and demanding Washington get its finances in order. It was a pretty good message. Now, most members of Congress are just interested in getting reelected. And if spending money freely helps with that goal, then they're 
fiscally conservative principles, well, they go out the window, or it's impossible to um, impose them. Well, this approach will uh, come back to bite them or us in the future. Well, in the budget report that was recently released, Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget projects that in 75 years, federal debt will be more than 3.5 times the size of the economy under current law as written, and at least six times the size of the economy if policies under current law are extended further after they expire. It quotes the Congressional Budget Office in its estimate, predicting that annual interest payments on the debt will continue unsustainably, rising from 1.6 percent of gross domestic product in 2018 to 14.9 percent by 2093. Now, you might scoff. 2093, we may not be here then, but nonetheless, it's worth uh, looking at the committee also cites the Congressional Budget Office's alternative fiscal scenario, which assumes discretionary spending increases continue and the 2017 tax law provisions are extended. It also assumes that various taxes from Obamacare and other programs continue to be delayed and emergency spending is reduced from the elevated levels this year, resulting from the recent disasters. Well, under the alternative fiscal scenario, the debt uh, would exceed 600 percent of GDP by 2093. One solution the Congressional Budget Office recommends is fixing the solvency of major trust funds, the Highway Trust Fund, Disability Insurance Trust Fund, Medicare Trust Fund, Social Security, and so on. Respectively, these, um, these funds will be depleted without current changes made um, to, the, the, to their funding by 2021, 2025, 2026, and 2032. It's apparent that spending for these programs must slow down dramatically or else the nation is in serious trouble. Well, you sort of get the idea. Well, what happens when you borrow the equivalent of your annual income and those low, low teaser rates start to increase? Congratulations, America. You're about to find out. Well, the Wall Street Journal reports some non-shocking, non-surprising news. Um, Wisconsin Art. Uh, Dreamtime.com uh, reports that in 2017, interest costs on federal debt of $263 billion accounted for 6.6 of all government spending and 1.4% of gross domestic product, well below the average of the previous 50 years. The Congressional Budget Office estimates, uh, estimates rather that interest spending will rise to $915 billion by 2028, or 13% of all outlays and 3.1% of gross domestic product. It will spend more on interest than it spends on Medicaid in 2020, more in 2023 than it spends on national defense, and more in 2025 than it spends on all non-defense discretionary programs combined. From funding for national parks to scientific research to health care and education to the court system and infrastructure, according to the CBO, Congressional Budget Office. A quick recap of our dismal national finances. The U.S. economy generates about $21 trillion in annual activity. Debt owed to the public comes to about $15.5 trillion. But when you add intragovernmental debt, which you should because it represents actual commitments to pay, the figure is about oh, $21 trillion. This isn't good, both for obvious and for less obvious reasons. Among the obvious problem, when you have to pay more in interest, it crowds out your ability to spend on other things. If, you, uh, if you're a government, it also might mean that you raise taxes or inflate your money. You could also cut spending, but politicians tend to resist that for a long-term solution. The federal government spends about $4.4 trillion a year, split among several categories, including what is considered mandatory and discretionary. 
The mandatory stuff includes entitlements, such as Social Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Congress doesn't need to vote on this spending for it to uh, continue. Discretionary spending includes spending on military, homeland security, schools, and other stuff that does need to get voted on. The percentage of spending that is mandatory has grown from around 30% in 1962 to about 62% of federal outlays today. Discretionary spending comes uh, to about 30% and interest on the debt rounds out the rest. Government spending will increase whether a divided government does anything or not. And absent significant changes in current law, what the government spends on will be more and more limited. From a uh, libertarian perspective, less government spending is a good thing, but we've not uh, really uh, we're not going to get that even with a gridlock Congress. Well, the national debt is coming due, just like uh, we've been told. And uh, you might want to gird your loins because it's going to cost us in ways that perhaps most of us haven't really given much thought. Fifteen minutes after five o'clock is the time. Up next, we're going to have a little fun with Wes Walterman, director and CEO of The Singing Christmas Tree, along with Jamie. She's been in the choir. This is her second year. She'll be performing at the Keller Auditorium on Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, and for, through the full run of The Singing Christmas Tree that ends about, what, December 1st, December 2nd. We'll give you all the important details in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, with me in studio is Wes Walterman. He is the uh, director and CEO of The Singing Christmas Tree. He's something of a renaissance man. He's a great musician. He's a choir director. He's an entrepreneur. Are there any things that you don't do? Maybe we should start there. It'd be a shorter, <laughs> shorter list. No, that, that's that's a good list going on. I, I'm I'm impressed, which is what you're saying, because I'm saying to myself, that can't be me. That can't be me. But my passion in life is music, and yeah. my passion is choirs. My passion is is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we can put all those elements together, which we're going to be doing here in another week. That gets me excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it gets me excited, too, because I've seen uh, your work, and I've had the opportunity to be a part of it, and that is thrilling. Also with me in studio is Jamie. She is a choir member, and I think this is the first time we've had a member of the Singing Christmas Tree Choir also with us here in studio. Jamie, you've been with the choir for two years. This is your second year coming up? That's correct, yes. <laughs> yeah. Now, what got you uh, started in singing with the Singing Christmas Tree Choir? Um, my roommate, actually, she signed up to do the singing Christmas. Well, she auditioned three years Mm -hmm. ago. She's been in it, but she'd been watching it since she was a child with her family. And, um, she'd always talk about it. And I just was like, Hmm, I love singing. This could be something I could get into. So I auditioned and I had never seen the tree prior to, you know, auditioning. So I didn't know what to expect, but it's honestly, it's been such a blessing for me as a single, you know, a stay at home mom. And, I look forward to it every year yeah. to, to be able to do this now. Yeah. So. Now, you mentioned that your roommate had been going to the tree since she was little. And I think that's true for a lot of our listeners. It has become a tradition. But it also may be true that people think, well, I pretty much know what to expect. I've been before. Mm-hmm. I know what happens. This year, Wes, there's some things, some elements that are quite different. And it's really re- the result of your polling of folks who have enjoyed the tree over the years. It really is. And we don't do a poll or a survey very often, if ever. But we decided to pull um, about 2,500 members of our audience after last year's uh, final finale. And so what we found is there's some things that we're doing, and we're doing really well, and there's some things that we need to tweak and, and look at. And so what we did is we scrapped all of our ideas for this coming year. We said, you know what? Everything's off the table. Let's, let's focus on 
what the audience, those who pay t- uh, ticket prices to come and experience it with their family and friends, let's really listen to what they want, what they, what they want to sense and feel during our show, and let's build it around that. And so Greg Tamlin, our producer, Paul Willie, one of our directors, and myself, we got together, and we just started looking at different songs and different feels. Uh, we're, we're a little bit less, quite a bit less, Santa Claus, mm-hmm. a brand new storyline from start to finish, brand new nativity. There is not one song from last year, not one song of this coming season that we're doing that we didn't do last year. Everything's new. Ten brand new songs. Then we thought, what did the audience enjoy in the 2000s? So we went back to 1999 to 2010, and we, uh, we found all the different songs that the, choir, or the audience loved, and they wanted back. And so we pulled those back in as our, from our archives. And so uh, we've, we've polished those off, and now they're part of our show. So the choir has about 26 songs to memorize and learn, and they've been doing a great job at it. So <laughs> I'm super excited to present this to our audience this year. Now, 26 songs. For the listener, they might think, oh, they're doing 20. These are 26 songs in which you need to memorize all the words. You need yes. to know your parts. <laughs> in addition to that, for those who are outside of the tree, mm-hmm. uh, there's choreography that goes along with that. There are dancers. There's a children's choir. This is a major undertaking for this community choir. Now, Jamie, <laughs> I know as a choir member, you've been at this for, for several months now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, since I believe it was the end of August, we've been practicing once a week on Mondays. And um, learning these songs. And some of the songs are actually very challenging because Mm -hmm. there's quite a few different languages that we're going to be, you know, showcasing in one of the pieces. And we have to learn the pronunciations properly, you know, how to properly sing these things because they're, you know, different cultures. um, It's their, you know... Christmas songs, and we have to get it right. You have to so. get it right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so while most of us were sunning ourselves this summer, uh, the folks in the Singing Christmas Tree Choir were working on music that will be presented to us beginning the day after Thanksgiving and running uh, that weekend and then the following weekend. We'll give you some details in just a moment. So a lot of hard work has gone into that. Now, you mentioned uh, you're singing in different languages. One of the new pieces that we're going to hear this year is, um, I think it's Christmas Around the World? That's correct. So what we did is we had a piece last the last two years called Christmas Through the Years. And so we, we took it from the 1920s yeah. all the way to current. So we thought, you know what, what is, would it be like to go around the world at this time of year and find out the favorite Christmas song in France or Nigeria or Germany or, or Spain? And so what we did is we pulled these four languages in. We do, of course, the Hawaiian piece. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we have uh, probably close to seven songs within this medley. And we're going to have uh, the period that, or that, that's, that country's uh, attire on stage as well during their piece that we're singing. So it's been challenging for the choir, for sure. Uh, but it's been really rewarding as well. And we're really looking forward to presenting this brand new piece at the close of our first act this year. Oh, sounds incredible. Now, the choir, I understand, is larger this year than we've seen in a while. Yeah, we're we're pushing about 260. So 145 people will be in the tree structure itself. The remainder will be out of tree, which we, you know, we have large staircases on either side of the tree structure. So these people out of tree actually have about 20 hours worth of rehearsals before the entry choir gets down to the keller all to learn their placement on the stage, their moves, moving across the stage, uh, uh, ch- you know, cl- changing of clothes for different pieces. So they're they're going to be super busy. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't even include the children's choir, which Correct. is a major part of the tree. That is. You have the Jefferson dancers who yep. are a part of the tree. I, I know that when I've been at the Keller for the three days that we rehearsed before the opening performance that uh, Friday after Thanksgiving – 
I've thought on Wednesday night, how on earth are we going to pull this off? <laughs> and somehow when the curtain rises yes. um, on, on Friday uh, for that first um, actual performance, it all just comes together. The curtain opens, the yeah, music starts. It does. And it's as if we were all professionals yeah. pulling yeah. this off. It really is a phenomenon that, that mm-hmm. uh, I've witnessed over several years. It's amazing. And it takes a master like Greg Tamlin to put it all together. <laughs> all of our volunteers, all these people are volunteers. I was going to ask Jamie also what it's like to be in the tree structure before the curtain opens. You can hear the music start. What is that sensation like when the, when the curtain opens, the audience is there, you take your breath and you sing your first note? What, is that, what does that feel like to be a choir member? Um, well, it's, I mean, it's extremely exhilarating. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, your heart's basically in your throat and you're, you're just like anticipating, oh my gosh, how many people are going to be actually out there? And oh my gosh, I hope I don't mess up, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's so exciting because you feel ready. You're so ready. You're ready to like show it, you know, and, and show the love of Jesus and like the love of Christmas to all your friends and family. And it's just, it's actually an amazing feeling. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when the curtain rises and the spotlight is on the choir, it's not just a group of people, but you can see the individual faces and there's a sense of joy and uh, gladness on the faces of every choir member. And I know as you sit in the audience, you kind of scan each face (laughs) and it really, uh, it's just an introduction to the joy of Christmas that begins with a smile on your faces and then this beautiful sound that arises out of this group of people who since August Mm -hmm. have been showing up for rehearsal to learn very difficult music to present uh, the love of Jesus to our community. Yeah. What an amazing thing. It really is. It is one really quick thing. Um, Before we actually like perform, you know, for the audience, we don't know what the show is going to look like. We have no idea what what is going to be on stage or like what the performance is actually going to be. So it's just as much a surprise for us being in the tree to see it for the first time, too. So and it's neat to see each year they completely change Mm -hmm. everything. It's like completely different from last year, which is neat. We're also uh, bringing back Victorian. That was a a, a important component back in the 2000s. So. We have uh, four songs, and we're going to bring back the snow and the, and the Victorian outfits and the strolling across the stage and the tr- tradition and nostalgia associated with that. Uh, one of my questions uh, to a, a several of our choir members is, what, are, what is one of your favorite pieces? You'll never guess which one. It's called Christmas Makes Everything New. And, Georgine, that's your song that you'll be presenting this year with the choir. But the choir has so enjoyed the words, the message of this, of this piece of music and it's just so much grown on me as as a conductor as well. And I cannot wait uh, to to be uh, presenting that with you to our audience this year. Well, I love that the singing Christmas tree helps put into perspective what has become a very secular holiday in which people are mustering up as much joy and happiness as they can. But on the exterior, there are all these challenges that we face. And unless you have that that. Uh, the core um, idea of Christmas, that Jesus really is the one that makes it all uh, meaningful, uh, then you might lose out. And so the Singing Christmas Tree, in a very comely and entertaining way, presents that message in a way that our community, uh, those who know Jesus and those who don't, really come away feeling a sense of of joy and hope. And so I'm looking forward to seeing that unfold once again. Now we need to take a quick break. Can you stick around for just a little while? All right. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show, but uh, with me in studio, Wes Walterman, the director, CEO of the singing Christmas tree and Jamie, who's going to be in the choir for her second year of performances. She, along with uh, so many other voices and dancers and kids and well, stuff that you've never seen before. And some of the old favorites as well. 
Quick break. We'll be back. By the way, we want to let you know how and where you can get tickets because my guess is you've got to make this a part of your uh, your kickoff for the season. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and we're having a lot of fun talking about the all-new sensational holiday extravaganza that is the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. Now, the performances begin the Friday after Thanksgiving. That's November the 23rd through the 25th, the 29th and 30th, December 1st and 2nd. Now, that may sound confusing if you're behind the wheel or you're trying to cut up the lettuce for dinner, but you can check that out on the website for more information, singingchristmastree.org. You can also call for tickets at 557 8733. That's 503-557-8733. We're talking about 26 new songs, a 300-voice choir, cinematic nativity, Jefferson dancers, the kids' choir, and Miss America 2002, Katie Harmon is returning to the Singing Christmas Tree as well. Well, let's talk about Katie. She has been in the tree before. It's been several years, but this beautiful Oregon Miss America is going to be back on the stage of the Keller this year. She is. She lives actually down south, I think in Klamath Falls. Mm -hmm. The last time she was part of the tree was our 50th, which was 2012. And so we asked her, would you be interested in coming back this year? And she, with tears streaming down her face, said, I would love to. I've missed the tree. I would love to be back. With, with this incredible choir and this incredible audience there in Portland again. So she'll be singing four songs with us. Oh, Holy Night is one of them. She'll team up with Timothy Greenidge, one of our soloists, and sing the prayer. Oh, that she, is just oh, an incredible. One of my favorites yes. as well. And then she's got a couple songs with the kids. and, and uh, So we're looking forward to her returning back to the tree this year. Now, if you know anything about Miss America, you know this is a beautiful woman who has accomplished. But you need to know that Katie Harmon is more than just a beautiful woman who's got a beautiful voice. She's just a sweet mm-hmm. Uh, friendly. She becomes a part of the community. It's not, you know, her and her dressing room and the rest of us elsewhere. She becomes a part of the Singing Christmas Tree community, and she will warm your heart. She's as genuine as you would hope, and it's just going to be wonderful to have her back in the Keller with the Singing Christmas Tree Choir. There are others. Coral Walterman, who also has a beautiful voice, will be part of the choir. Timothy Greenidge, I'm even given an opportunity to sing a song (laughs) You're doing a couple songs with us. Do you hear what I hear with Timothy? And then, of course, Christmas makes everything new. Yes. So I'm I'm excited about that. I'm also thinking of um, Aaron Tamblin will be with us. She'll yes, be playing thank Mary you. Again this year, and uh, also um, Courtney Temple. That's Timothy Greenish's daughter. She'll be she'll be doing a piece with the choir as well. So, and and this is one year. What we heard on our survey is: Can we hear more large choir numbers? This is a year that the the audience will hear more large choir numbers than ever before. So our choir has really been working behind the scenes because. When you work on a full choir number versus working a little background for, for a solo, mm-hmm. it's, it's totally different. So there's a lot more to memorize, to learn, a lot more key changes in some of these large arrangements. We have this beautiful a cappella piece called Coventry Carol with just oh. the women. Mm-hmm. And let me just pick one song out of our nativity yeah. if I could. It's, it's a song that was made famous 20, 25 years ago by uh, Mark Lowry. He wrote it. It's called Mary Did You Know. One of my favorite versions of this is CeeLo Green singing this. So what we've done is, is as a choir director, I've pulled a piece that I've done about uh, 20 years ago with a large choir down in San Diego, Mary Did You Know, and it's from Christchurch Choir in Tennessee. So I've pulled out the middle section, the bridge of that, and morphed it with a CeeLo Green version, and it is the most moving, amazing piece where Timothy starts the song out as a solo, very slow, very meaningful, and then it builds into this huge choir, mm-hmm. 300-voice choir in the middle, and then it starts dying down near the end. And then it ramps back up and ends. 
And while this is happening, this is our first year to ever hire an aerial artist, kind of bring in a little circus ole on stage. We've had to have a, a special truss brought in just to support this with a huge winch backstage where no one sees it. We'll have an operator that just operates this one person hovering above the manger and during this song and flowing across the stage with, with these beautiful white garments. And it's just going to be breathtaking. So if I could just paint that one mm. picture of one moment in our, in our second half of the show, it's worth, it's worth the ticket prices. And uh, as we get into ticket price, I also want to mention a little bit about the ticket pricing. Please. So this year we're shutting down our second balcony. Second balcony for the Singing Christmas Tree is, is the furthest top balcony you can, you can purchase. We're, we're creating darkness up there. No one will be allowed up there. It's just because you're so far back in the hall, it's hard to understand. It's hard to hear. Plus, it's hard to see. Yeah. And so we're bringing all those ticket prices down to the first balcony. You're not paying more to sit in the first balcony. You're paying the same ticket price as you were up up a balcony back further, about 50 feet further back. So in, across the board, even on the ground floor, all our ticket prices are less this year. And so we're doing that to make it more affordable for the audience to come and bring family members. And uh, we just want to make sure that the family gets experiences as a family and, and it won't hurt the pocketbook as well. Yeah. And I just want to emphasize that for a moment, that as part of this effort to better understand our audience and to, to bring a program that's going to be meaningful, that the Singing Christmas Tree made the decision to lower the ticket prices. Yes. Um, that's not underwritten by anybody anywhere else. This is, this is a, a gift to our community. Absolutely. And as you mentioned earlier, we're talking about volunteers who make this presentation. So this is a very generous gesture to make sure that those who perhaps hadn't come to the tree a year or so uh, because of the, the ticket prices, they've been um, priced for you. So make note of that. Uh, you may not uh, just come by yourself. You may want to invite others to come with you. This might be the year to invite a neighbor or uh, a widow across the street or someone that you know doesn't have uh, much of an opportunity. This is going to bring joy into the heart of anyone who is in that audience. So take uh, take note of that. Again, the performances began on Friday, November the 23rd with a 2 o'clock performance. On Saturday the 24th, uh, two performances, one at 2 and 7 p.m., uh, on Sunday, there's a performance at 2 o'clock p.m. And then the following Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, uh, there are performances. Thursday and Friday at 7.30 p.m. And we're talking the 29th and 30th of November. And then, of course, Saturday, two performances. That's December the 1st at 2 o'clock and 7 o'clock p.m. And then our final performance on Sunday, December the 2nd at 1 o'clock p.m. Now, I know that's a lot of information, but again, you can go to the website, singingchristmastree.org. Uh, for those details, and you can also call 503-557-8733. Again, that's 503-557-8733. Make note of those lowered ticket prices, uh, the dates that are coming up, because I cannot tell you how many people I run into, people I don't even know. Oh, you sing with the singing Christmas tree. Yes, I do. Oh, I'm planning on going this year. Sorry, <laughs> we're it's, finished. It's finished by December 2. We're done. Yeah, yeah it's, mm-hmm. been, it's a way to start the season. And it, it will is. carry you through the rest, really of, the, rest of the uh, weeks leading up to Christmas. So do, uh, do call now. Don't put it off because before you know it, it will have come and gone and we'll be reflecting back on one of the best years ever for the singing Christmas tree. Now, Jamie, what are you looking forward to most about this year's performance? performance says plural um, you know i i'm looking forward to a lot of just letting the audience see these new songs yeah. because they're so new they're new to me there's a nigerian piece that i just am in love with 
I hated it when we first got it and we had to learn the, yes. the language. It was just like, oh, no, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to fake this. But, you know, after, you know, working with it since August, you really you kind of fall in love with these pieces and you get so excited to share them with everybody because they're so different. They're, yeah. You know, you're showcasing a culture on stage. It's just kind of cool to show that to the audience because who's going to hear Nigerian in their life? Mm-hmm. Like they're you know, their Christmas tunes that they sing over there. You know, it's like, it's neat yeah. to share that with people. Yeah. So Wes, things um, change on Monday. The uh, the choir begins rehearsals at the Keller Auditorium. I think you may yeah. actually have a couple of days before uh, that. But for right. you, what's most exciting about to opening the show? Um, I, th- I think just uh, in my mind, just finalizing everything and, and just collecting thoughts and, and working with Paul Willie on, our collaboration as directors and seeing it all come together and the work that Greg Tamlin does on that stage. Um, if, if I could just have another 30 seconds just to talk through our give back to the community because it's yes. such an important aspect and part of our 501c3 organization. Um, this year, or as opposed to pro- previous years, we used to do a, a, a preview sponsor night. So we'd have those low-income families or people that are just going through some hard times. They don't have the funds to, to bring their family or themselves to the tree. Uh, and they, and we would let them in on the Thursday before our kickoff, and it would be a free show. Mm-hmm. And we only allowed that for one night. Well, what we heard is across the board is, you know, we, we got things going on, and, and I just wish it was a different night. We could attend. So what we decided to do this year is keep a block of tickets in, in very good seats on the, on the floor and in the first balcony. Every show, all nine shows, will have these reserved seats, and that will just be for our preview, uh, sponsor previews, those who just can't afford a ticket and so they've been going through Patty, our, our ticket office person, and, and so she's been booking them in these great seats. And it's important that they have just as good a seat as, as yeah. someone else that's, that's attending that night that has paid full price. And because uh, we, all, we all fall in hard times from time to time. You know, it's important that we as an organization recognize, you know, you're so valuable as a person. And we want you to start your Christmas out the right way. And we want you to come and, and experience the love and peace and joy and hope that we have to give to you. And, and we value you and we love you. And, and so that's what we're doing this year for our give back to the community. Oh, that's amazing. What you've just described really is the heart and soul of the Portland Singing it Christmas really Tree Choir. Yes. Uh, this extraordinary group of people who sacrifice not just their time, um, and there's a significant sacrifice there, the time for rehearsing, for learning the music, but really um, extend their, the love of Jesus into our community. Uh, you don't get much in return for that. It, it costs them significant ways in order to make this presentation. And I have been so honored to associate with this uh, wonderful collection of, of people in our community who've made that sacrifice mm-hmm. to simply say, Merry Christmas. Absolutely. There's yeah. hope for you. There really is. It's, it's an amazing thing. Well, once again, I want to encourage you to pick up your tickets. The Singing Christmas Tree starts next Friday, November 23rd. I know I still can't (laughs) believe it. And then runs uh, the the following weekend as well. Katie Harmon will be back. Miss America 2002, along with many others. 26 new songs, 300 voice choir, cinematic nativity, Jefferson dancers, the kids choir. It's all there. You can call and purchase your tickets at 503-557-8733. Again, 503-557-8733. Or online, you can uh, go to singingchristmastree.org. 
org. Thank you both so much for being on with me today, and we look forward to a great couple of weeks of the Singing Christmas Tree. We'll end with the Hallowed Chorus as well. We'll see yes. you there, Georgine. <laughs> Looking forward to it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I have to tell you, I've kind of looked forward to saying that once again right here behind the mic of uh, KPDQ. As you probably know, I've been gone for the last couple of weeks traveling with India Partners, and what an extraordinary trip it was. Uh, I have to connect that, though, to India Partners itself. It was an extraordinary trip, not just because I was in a foreign country, but because I had the opportunity firsthand to see the work of India Partners, which means the organizations they they partner with and sponsor Uh, in country and um, some amazing people. In fact, I'm planning on spending some time next week and I'll let you know ahead of time to talk at length about that uh, that experience. Um, As you know or may know, I left on October 25th. I just got back on Friday last and uh, it takes a while to kind of get yourself acclimated to the time and back on the job and all of that. But I'm putting some things together and I'm hoping to have one of my fellow travelers join me in studio uh, to talk about that. One thing I will say Uh, is that when uh, the folks that we met with, the ministries, Living Sacrifice Ministries and uh, Sahara, when they learned that I was associated with the radio station that had helped to underwrite some of the projects that I saw firsthand, the level of gratitude, it it was almost embarrassing to me because it was lavished on me because I represented you. Uh, But these people are so grateful, and it's not lost on them that you've made sacrifices to make their work possible because they have made tremendous sacrifice to serve their countrymen in Christ's name. Uh, So we're going to talk more about that, but I wanted to just let you know that uh, these folks are grateful for uh, the funds that you have have given to help them continue in the work that they do under very difficult circumstances and um, with very limited resources. They're doing amazing work. So we'll talk more about that, but it is good to be back behind the mic and in studio. I do want to mention, uh, thank James Blend for his commendable work in orchestrating all of the guest hosts and then stepping in and becoming one of them himself, uh, having done a great job, as I've heard, and will listen at some point uh, later this week. Do so appreciate uh, being able to leave and know that things are in capable hands. So thank you, James, for uh, all you did to make that possible. And once again, thank you to the uh, lineup of guest hosts. I, I always delight in giving folks in our community an opportunity to spend some time behind the mic because we have such uh, amazing uh, leaders in this community and uh, giving you an opportunity to hear from them is uh, is a wonderful thing. So that said, uh, we'll be talking at greater length about that uh, sometime next week. Well, we live in a time where, uh, well, few things are fixed. We are told that there are no absolutes. There's really no certainty, clarity, fixed positions. One example of that was brought to my attention by Dennis Prager. He wrote for the Patriot Post uh, today. He pointed out that a 69-year-old motivational speaker in the Netherlands, whose name is Emile Rattelbland, hmm, Rattelbland, um, He's petitioned a Dutch court for permission to change his legal age by altering his birth certificate to show that he was born 20 years later than he really was. I'm guessing what it was supposed to say is 20 years earlier to legally make him 49 years old rather than the 69 that he is biologically. Rattle Bland told The Washington Post that we can make our own decisions if we want to change our name or if we want to change our gender. So I want to change my age. My feeling about my body and about my mind is that I'm about 40 to 45. 
Well, as the Telegraph reported, Mr. Rattlebland was uh, born on the 11th of March, 1949, but says he feels at least 20 years younger and wants to change his birth date to the 11th of March, 1969. So he wants to keep the same birth date, but a different year. Mr. Rattlebland rather said, I've done a checkup, and what does it show? My biological age is 45 years. When I'm 69, I am limited. If I'm 49, then I can buy a new house, drive a different car. I can take up more work. When I'm on uh, Tinder and it says I'm 69, I don't get an answer. Uh, when I'm 49 with a face I have, I will be in a luxurious position. Well, it is the uh, transgender movement that inspired Mr. Rattlebland. Transgenders can now have their gender changed on their birth certificate, even if it doesn't match their biological makeup. He argues that in the same spirit, there should be room for an age change. Well, now what exactly is wrong with his uh, argument? Well, if sex doesn't objectively exist and we're being told it shouldn't, why does age? If feelings determine sex, why don't feelings determine age? If we are to regard sex as assigned at birth, why don't we regard age as assigned at birth as well? Of course, uh, some would argue that age is fixed while gender is fluid, but gender, if gender is fluid, uh, it's um, somewhat of a meaningless statement. All the uh, uh, proponents of it have done is substitute the word gender for sex and then make up a rule. Gender is fluid, meaning sex is fluid. Well, few deny there are people with gender dysphoria, people who don't identify with their biological sex. These people deserve our care, our sympathy, our respect. Do every person as a child of God uh, that he or she is. But sympathy for the minuscule percentage of people uh, who don't identify with their biological makeup doesn't mean sex, gender, or age, for that matter, doesn't objectively exist. It just means some people don't identify with their objective sexual identity, or in this case, with their objective, actual, biological, physical age. Now think about a world in which there are absolutely no absolutes, where there is no certainty, no clarity, no fixed positions. How does one live? How do you navigate in the world under those circumstances. That's precisely the world that we're being presented. And we as thinking men and women have been given the opportunity to decide whether or not we want to accept sort of the going thing or we want to stand on what I would argue are absolutes, certainty, clarity, and fixed positions. So there you have it. 21st century life. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're looking forward to a conversation with... um, Alistair Begg, he has a new book out. Actually, it's a book that has been revised and re-released. We're going to talk with him about that. And we'll also continue to look at developments in Florida and in California, where wildfires are wreaking havoc in Florida. Of course, it has to do with the election in California, the actual literal wildfire that's destroying homes and has broken records uh, in that state. As I mentioned earlier in the program, the death toll has risen as of my last reading to 42. Uh, and I can't even imagine the, the terror of uh, finding oneself in that position and the number of homes that have been destroyed thus far. Uh, we'll certainly try to keep you uh, posted on details, but also opportunities that we uh, might have to help support those who have lost literally everything. Well, thanks so much for listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in studio tomorrow. And I also want to remind you that on Thursday... We have the Transitional Youth Radiothon. I'm so looking forward to bringing you up to date on the work they're doing right here in our community with homeless young people and the opportunity we have to respond in uh, helping provide for uh, this ministry. So mark your calendars.
plan to join us. Have a great night. Oh, by the way, thanks, James. Engineering and producing today's program. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.